This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. I'm going to start with my own story. At a garage sale in January, I found a corset. It was boned and lacy, and in October, I had great delight in seeing it worn on stage as a costume by a bar girl in Miss Saigon. I do like a garage sale. So what has this story got to do with my author today? Well, welcome Robin and Mia. Thanks, Jan. Just you share an interest in secondhand clothes. Oh, yeah. Secondhand anything. (laughs) (laughs) And your book, your book has the title Nothing New and the subtitle? A history of secondhand. Right. So, <laughs> secondhand means different things to different people. Yeah, well, yeah, sure it does. I mean, to me, you know, it, uh, it, it lights me up, but to lots of people, it's anathema. Um, oh. There's um, such a stigma associated with it for many people, either because of their own experience when younger, um, of having to rely on secondhand and new not being a possibility for them. Um, or, you know, if they're the kinds of people who don't like dust and dirt yeah, and germs. And germs. Yeah. Um, it seems to be something that they're not comfortable with. So there's a, and, and between those two, those two poles, there's a vast spectrum. I always think we've got five op shops in the town I live in, but I always think of them as, you know, 2,000 op shops. You know, they represent a different thing to every person who walks in the door they're, they're kind of antenna uh, uh, attuned to something different every single person and you just watch what people make a beeline for or what they bring up to the counter because I work in the shop occasionally and uh, it's just you know people look for and find completely and, and, and use in different ways things that I just would never have thought of. Yeah well your book starts with the history of clothes and I was surprised just how difficult it was for people to get clothes. Now, this is kind of like 300, <laughs> 400 years ago. But, yeah, yeah that's really difficult. Yeah, so, there was a limited pool of stuff. When you consider everything had to be handmade yeah. and the cost that would have been entailed either in time or, or in getting a tradesperson to do that, you can imagine why for most people um, clothes were secondhand, naturally secondhand. Mm-hmm. They, they might have, may have been the, the second, third, fourth owner of that particular coat or whatever that had been either handed down class-wise and sold down or had been handed down and remade for successive mm. sizes of person from a woman's full-size dress. And as it went under the arms and so on, um, it would be cut down to, uh, to suit a smaller person. So, yeah. Secondhand was the natural way of things when there was a limited pool of stuff to and, go and around. And people didn't own many clothes either. Nope, nope. And, and so there was a business dealing in clothes. Oh, huge up. business, yeah. So by the uh, 19th century, secondhand clothes was a, was a vast business. You look at somewhere like London and they had, the same as they had a stock exchange and a fruit and vegetable exchange and all the, a coal exchange for all these big commodities, there was a secondhand um, exchange as well where people, the people, basically the rag and bone men, but they were, they were called old clothes men, who would go around crying through the streets, old clothes, old clothes, and they were wanting to buy your old clothes. Um, they would bring them back there of an afternoon. They bring it, back their bounty and sell it from and there. And in this old clothes exchange, there were what, there were occupations that I've never heard of: a clobberer, a reviver, <laughs> and a translator. That's right. So each of those each of those three branches of the the remaking and. Um, repurposing trade that came out of the old clothes exchange um, would be either um, 
mending as they were or remaking or uh, the clobberer was they were sort of a, a larger scale overhaul and clobber and a lot of clobbering went on to shoes. Someone asked me the other day actually whether our Australian word clobber for clothes could have come from oh, the clobberers and I'd never thought of that but I guess yeah maybe. And even when clothes couldn't be worn anymore. Huh. <laughs> what were rag, rags used for? Well there was yeah the ragmen so uh principally paper, <laughs> cotton, the, you had yeah, your choice of clothes you had uh, cotton, wool and silk. So cotton was mainly collected to make paper before paper was remade mm-hmm. as paper, uh, before that technology existed. Wool was shredded up uh, to make new wool. So it was shredded up uh, by these big tooth machines called devils, uh, which created a lot of dust called devil's dust, which would be uh-huh. used to make flock wallpaper as well as to line the lungs of the workers who oh, uh, worked yuck. in those plants. But uh, the, the, the wool would be ground up and then mixed with a small amount of new woolen fibre to make uh, a, a cheaper quality wool, which was very cheap, purpose-made clothing. Lots of people flocked to it, and it was called shoddy. Uh, mm. And hence, that's where the word shoddy came from. Mm. Gives away the quality of the clothing. The uh, the guys who had their uniforms made of shoddy during the American Civil War used to say that they would melt during a de- oh, uh, during a shower of rain. They would just return to the pulp whence they came. So that was those two. And silk couldn't really be re- remade. There was no way of recycling that fabric for anything else apart from uh, they'd use it a bit in uh, to make. Decorations on handkerchiefs and things like this, but that's why our costume collections, our grand costume collections, are so full of grand silk frocks because those were the things that survived. Everything else was kind of shredded and pulped and ended up, when all other use was uh, was gone, ended up as manure on the broccoli fields or uh, some other sort of berries. Loved what they called land rags and the rags would end up there and be distributed across the fields. Now, I'm going to get Robin Anir to read a little bit from one of her books, uh, from her book. This is nothing new because I, this was a bit of history that I didn't know and this is once again to do with old clothes. Okay, it's from Chapter 15 called Mending versus Ending. In Paris, during the First World War, The British Army had a vast salvage depot served by a railway siding into which would roll wagon loads of soiled, blood-stained and tattered uniforms. At the depot, hundreds of French civilians, most of them women, were employed in sorting, cleaning, disinfecting and repairing the uniforms, sending as many as possible back to the muck-sodden soldiers at the front. Um... Uniforms arriving at the depot so blood-stained or shredded as to be past repair were shipped off as rags to the shoddy mills still running at Dewsbury near Leeds in England. The rest would be returned to a condition almost as good as new. Besides garments of wool and cotton, the salvage workers had to revive coats lined with fur or sheepskin and leather jerkins and the long rubber boots worn in the trenches. Of the latter, 2,000 pairs were washed and dried daily. Any that were too far gone were used to patch the rest. Many of the female salvage workers adopted as their work gear old British army jackets, complete with the stripes denoting rank. <laughs> <laughs> Look, and we go on to find out in World War Two, um, there was collection of fat and hair curlers and silk <laughs> stockings, all for munitions. Now, we're going to have to jump quickly through this because it's just fascinating. <laughs> the whole business we were looking at change greatly 
in the 1960s when the youth culture decided to dress differently and Mick Jagger wore a uniform, a fancy dress, a streetwear. So we get this whole thing about these opportunity shops turning mm. into, you know, people started, started collecting antique or vintage or mm. retro. And, um, and it, it just... Well, how did the Opportunity Shop change? <laughs> the Opportunity Shop started not far from um, your Fitzroy studio. Um, in 1925, St Vincent's Hospital was uh, raising money to build a new wing and uh, they had an empty building, which John Wren had sold to them very cheaply. It was circular. It had been an old boxing stadium and before that um, it had been a place where pre-movies had been shown. Um, And uh, they had this building and one of the people on the fundraising committee, whose name was Lady Millie Millie Tallis, a former um, stage star, had just come back from a motoring holiday of Europe and uh, the US with her husband. And uh, they had seen these bargain shops, charitable bargain shops, and she thought we could do something like that—not just a, a two-day, um, not just a two-day jumble sale, but uh, a longer-lasting affair. So um, they had a, and she said, "Let's call it an opportunity shop." She, the the shops she'd seen in France were called Magasin d'Occasion, and Occasion apparently can mean not just bargain but also opportunity. So she very cleverly had a marketing brain and called them opportunity shops, which is, to my mind, such a great improvement on the charity shops of the UK or the, um, what do they call them, thrift shops yeah. in the US. So both of those have a kind of a, a moral um, um, undertone to them, whereas opportunity just kind of sparkles, doesn't it, and just draws you in. Yeah, and in the first three hours mm. of it opening, it it made three hundred pounds. That's right. Yeah, nineteen twenty five. Yeah, and they just they would just sell out like that. Another op shop that opened early on in the thirties near here, um, run by the Brotherhood of St Lawrence, only opened once or twice a month in a tiny little shop, um, and in a tiny little shop, and uh, the police used to have to attend <laughs> those openings because so few people could fit inside, and so many wanted to get in there that the uh, crowd control. Crowd control was necessary. Well, look, it's just not clothes that's spoken about in this nothing new. It's other markets. Uh, what did Henry Ford learn about the desire for new cars? <laughs> See, good old Henry Ford, he had such an, I guess, 19th century way of seeing the world that he thought people, what people want would want in a car would be something that would last. They don't even have to buy one car. And it was, and he took pride in this. He, that's how he marketed his gear. This um, um, T-model Ford will be the only car you ever need to buy. Well, uh, rival car makers soon got the message that people were attracted to kind of new bling and a better model and there was this kind of aspirational thing at work. Consumerism was really gaining steam during the 1910s and especially the 1920s. And in the end, even Henry Ford had to come around to creating new models that might just have a few extra bells and whistles. But um, what he learned, of course, was that as people bought new cars, there were second-hand cars, and he had not foreseen that. No. So... uh, Second-hand cars rivaled new cars in popularity and uh, 
he he actually proposed um, starting a plan or getting the government to start an operation whereby all secondhand cars had to be had to be junked and pulled apart and made into new cars. A disassembly line. A disassembly line, exactly. <laughs> so they would not rival the new ones. But of course, the the used car market overtook the new car market, and yeah, you know, this master businessman had not um, had not foreseen, or industrialists had not foreseen that. Look, we go on to things like um, things that are sold through the lost property mm-hmm. or, or found object area. Stories of weird findings, you know, mm. sort of just fascinating stuff. You know, what is finding the diamond among the dross? And, well, that's you know, everyone's dream, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I just, you know, as as we started with you and I, uh, loving a garage sale. Hopefully, it doesn't come to what happens in USA that you have to have a seventy five dollar permit. <gasps> Horrible thing. <laughs> so this is nothing new. It traces the history of second hand the stigmas attached to it and the business that it continues to be. So thank you very much, Robin Robin Anir. Thanks, Jan. Thank you, Jan. Now, Christos Tsiolkos takes us on a journey through the foundations of the Christian church in his latest novel, Damascus. So, Christos, welcome back to 3CR. Uh, It's always good to be back at 3CR. Sorry I was a bit late. I got... (laughs) Caught in a terrible traffic. Melbourne traffic. Yeah, Melbourne traffic. Saul, Paul, you were on the road somewhere, were you? (laughs) Saul, Paul on the road to Damascus. Now, let's just set the scene a little here with the significance of this man and this location. Look, uh, Paul, uh, St. Paul, he was born, uh, his Jewish name uh, was Saul, um, and he was born in a place called Tarsus, in what is now in southeast Turkey. And he was... Uh, a devout Jewish man. He was also a tent maker, a canvas maker. That's what he tells us in the letters he wrote. And the letters, former Paul's letters to various, we wouldn't even call them Christian now, guys. It was before the word was even coined. These communities of a, let's call it a, a heretical sect within Judaism that were across the um, the, the ancient world, um, the, the Eastern Mediterranean. These letters form the core part, a really core part of the New Testament or the Christian Bible. And maybe the best way for people who don't know about Paul is to say that he, he was the interpreter of a prophet called Jesus. Who, um, and so I remember in Greece, oh, some time ago, I was talking to a, a very smart uh, friend of mine about wanting to do this book, you know, being fascinated by Paul and who he was and his interpretation of Christianity. And Yanni said to me, oh, yeah, Paul. Paul was led into Jesus' marks. So maybe <laughs> that's a good way of um, explaining to, um, him to a, a non uh, people who don't really know who he is. And Damascus was in the biblical story where he came to enlightenment. He was blinded by a light and therefore... Enlightened, and he became then the a follower of Jesus. Yeah, yeah. And for, um, Jesus. Okay, so that's the background. Uh, just to, on that, sorry, though. To yes, he's he's considered, you know, in the in the Christian history, he's considered one of the apostles, but he never actually knew Jesus. So, like, he wasn't one of the twelve apostles. He has he goes to Damascus. He says that he's um, uh, persecuting these 
people because of their beliefs, and he has this vision. And basically, this is where the story starts, because he's been involved in um, bringing a girl to a stoning, basically. She's a heretic, she's part of this new sect, she's going to be stoned to death. And it is brutal what you're offering us here. And that brutality goes all the way through the novel in many ways because of the pagan beliefs and attitudes. But uh, Also, she... I would say, sorry to, to interrupt okay. again, but also because you're also dealing with a time where the Roman state is is quite brutal in the way... You know, what Rome did in one way was it granted you uh, a citizenship to the um, to the empire. But if you in any way disagreed or um, fell on the wrong side of the, uh, the kind of the, uh, the ledger about what it was to be a good citizen, then the punishments were horrific. But the same could apply if you denied your Judaism. That's right. That's and, right. And the punishment was What's death. The- But this is interesting because basically you are counterpointing in this opening this notion of a purity because immediately after the stoning, Saul bathes because he wants to enter the temples. He has to do his ablutions, that's right. But you've got this counterpointing of um, a purity, which, you know, this is the uh, what we've got to strive for, and this brutality, which... They're all perpetuating because of their beliefs. So the, the fundamental problem still exists in the church today in many ways. Oh, look, yeah, I mean, I mean, you, you know, I've been I've been writing this novel under the, you know, in the shadow of all these crises that are happening across the um, the the Christian communities. But you know, to turn, I mean, look, I, I've got the first thing to say about this book has been the it's been such a pleasure. Because I've been lost in it for five, close to six years now, and I feel like I've been a student. Like it's just been exciting to be to to go back and go. And I was very, very precise. I'm going to stick to the first century of the Common Era and and read about it, and read philosophy, and read theology, and read the Bible. Well, you actually take us through four generations of the early Christian Church, um, but then this also points out some of the challenges and precisely to your to your question before there david like you know what it is you know this you know you read this uh, uh, you read this history and you realize that there is some great beauty that came out of this period so some of our greatest philosophy you know some of the the great you know virgil comes out of this period but this was a slave society right for most people this was suffering and this was a faith that was speaking to those who were suffering. And and the suffering was because people couldn't control their situations. Yeah, I mean, they had no right. You provide us with the stories of several people through this. So, for example, Lydia, who has to basically um, abandon um, her first child, a girl, because it's not appropriate, we want a boy, and you've got all of that notion of blood going through this novel as well. Blood was a... That was a... When I had... As I was structuring it, um, I had the word blood on every opening <laughs> section because it is about because it is about blood in terms of the kind of violence that was in the world, but it's also about the notion of blood and what made Paul's words truly scandalous was that he he said that this faith was no longer a Jewish faith that Jew, you know being Jewish was no longer about blood. 
right? That this, it's the universal. The universal enters history in a letter that he writes to the Galatians where he says, we are not man and we are not woman. We are not Greek and we are not Jewish. We are not master and we are not slave. We are one. And the best evocation in many ways, I think, is Lydia, who yes. gives up her life for her uh, final child, who is deformed, a female, and deformed. Born, yep. But she gives up her own life for that child in, in, in terms of sacrificing, um, not physically, but going out to protect. She makes herself an exile. Yes. Which is a really difficult thing for anyone to do. In, in, in 2019, it's a difficult thing to do. For a woman 2,000 years ago to actually turn her back on family and, and community, a huge but sacrifice. But they were just throwing babies over the wall if they were deformed, get, get rid of them, yeah. sort of thing. I mean, later then, you have the story of Vrassus, a former Roman soldier, and the opening of that, chapter is blood because that's an old pagan ritual, ritual and they're consuming the blood of um, an ox that's been slaughtered uh, in, a, in a pit. It's and Vrasus is actually, he's a, and this was quite common through the, uh, the Roman Empire amongst the, 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 the soldiers, that they were devotees of the sun god. You know that that was the that that was seen as the god of the of, of the soldier, and the the blood was a way washing in the blood was a way of taking life into oneself. And yet the irony is that the uh, Christian sect, if we can call it that, and even though it's not quite named that yet, um, they're labelled as living off the blood and body of Yeshua, as you call him here, uh, and it's a. a, a Blood sect, a, a cannibalistic I, sect. I mean, Brussels refers to it as a death cult. I mean, look, you know, for me, Damascus is, is both. It's both these things. And one of them is, is, is a novel of ideas, of ideas that I've been challenged by and uh, dealing with and, and fascinated by all my life. Like, you know, from, from very young, kind of what is, it the meaning, what is the meaning of faith, which is also what is the meaning of doubt, right? And what is what is the idea of being good in the world what how do we how do we do that what is what is morality right and for me coming from a greek orthodox background my first introduction to that is through christianity so that's why i'm going all the way back but the other thing i am is a writer of fiction so i had to make it exciting right i had to make it something that you would want to that I, I want you to be challenged by the ideas as you're reading this novel but i also want you to think that these are really flesh and blood characters i had to make paul real not a saint mm -hmm. i had to create a woman because one of the things i found out in the um in the in the research was that the history of the women in the early church has been completely erased mm -hmm. so i wanted lydia there and lydia she uh, she comes into the canonical bible she's referred to in the book of acts which is half of the book of acts which follows the gospels in the bible is the story of paul and he and we are told that the first um non-jewish uh, uh person he brings to this faith is a woman called lydia and um, that was all I needed. To, and I thought, that what is it? What would it be to make a woman make this choice back then? And I had to put myself in Lydia's feet, for shoes. Like I really – the other thing I want – and then with Vrasas is I also – but I have – I've been wrestling with Paul so many decades, but I feel – a real tenderness to him now, right? Almost a protectiveness because he gets he accused he gets accused of many things. He gets accused of homophobia. I'm gay, you know. That's the wrestling I've had with Paul all my life. But 
I think the ethics that he is talking about are still relevant and really important. What I can't get to, sorry, I know, okay. it's just because it's so much I want to talk about this book and it's, and it's so hard to do it. <laughs> it compress this, but the thing that I can't, the bridge I can't uh, cross over with Christianity, and I think we've all monotheism, but particularly Christianity and Islam has it more than Judaism, is this uh, separation they do between the body and the mind and the soul. You know, that, that the flesh is evil and spirit is good. And Vrasis represents something different. The mm. right, he's the pagan and there's something about the pagan that I respect. But he's coming, trying to come to terms with the fatted calf, this notion yeah. of the, the calf slaughtered for the child that was the prodigal yeah. and comes back. He can't understand that. So coming to terms with that. You then have uh, Timothy, another... Uh, well, who's basically a disciple of Paul, that then becomes a homoerotic uh, mm. relationship. But also you then introduce Thomas <laughs> as well. We're not going to have time to discuss Thomas and the agnostics and all of this sort of thing. I, I, I wish I could because Thomas became really important. It was when I actually discovered the Gospel of Thomas that the book that it, I realised I had a book because I had a conflict between Paul and Thomas. And I'll be really quick. In 1948, there was an amazing discovery in Upper Egypt, uh, a treasure of books that had been hidden from us for 1,700 years. When the church, uh, Christianity became the official religion of the empire, they were put, some monks buried them under a monastery. They disappeared for 1,700 years, and now we have them. And the Gospel of Thomas is gospel, is the teaching of Jesus with no resurrection. And when I discovered that, and there's an apocryphal story that uh, Thomas is Jesus' twin brother, so I've made him the twin, and it becomes an argument, to go right back to your first question there, David, how do we live these ethics in in a world that is and how do we is be hard, it's brutal, it's up, yeah. Well, in a, in a brutal world, mm. even, even the world today, in many ways, we've got ethical decisions to make. We are flawed characters. Your Saul remains flawed. He is prone to jealousy and pride, even at the end. He's no saint. He's no saint. <laughs> and therefore, you've got to live with the human condition. That's why the, 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 the last part of the book does go you know, into what I call the third or fourth generation, because you know what sustains Lydia? is the hope that Jesus is coming. Like, not just in as a uh, metaphor, that he's actually, he's going to arise and this, this hellhole that she finds herself, that he's suffering, is going to disappear with his coming. And that Jesus but is, that is, coming, is coming, he never comes. And so how do you live those ethics? It's really, like, the way I, I, I talk about it is like, it's so, to love the, the stranger and the neighbour, to... To say we are going to, I am going to give up all my my possessions and wealth and live in communal life. They are beautiful ideas. Do not throw the first stone. All, I think, still really challenging ideas for me. But how do you, you know, it's easy to do that or say that when you think in two months Jesus is coming, in a year Jesus is coming. How do we do it? But the, for there's a that lifetime? physical return which they wanted to believe yeah. in, but then there's the spiritual return, which and is that Thomas, division. and yeah. that is what Thomas is saying. Yeah. You do it in the here and now, and it, you don't worry. The kingdom is here. Yes, you know. But then, how do you justify the kingdom with all of this brutality if it is here now? Uh, well, that, as I said. <laughs> I have been, That's the dilemma of I've been, uh, you know, it's the dilemma of Christianity, but, you know, I'm not actually, um, I'm not religious, so I've come to this, well, that's, let, let's just say I'm not a Christian, right, in the, in the, um, 
traditional sense because I don't believe in the resurrection, right? There, there are key things, aspects, but I am so profoundly moved and challenged by Christian ethics. But that question you were asking, uh, David, could, you could ask that about politics, you know, and De- Damascus comes after, you know, I, I did a book a few, you know, some time ago called Dead Europe, which was also about a loss of faith in something called communism. Mm-hmm. All right, and those questions that are in Damascus are being, I think we have to ask them as political beings as well, and I'm worried that we and don't do in that. today's society, yeah. especially amongst politicians who claim to be Christian. Christos. About all of us, all of us should be should not be worried about doubt, and we shouldn't be worried about asking questions. We're going to have to finish know, the I'm interview. Sorry. I'm sorry, Christos. <laughs> Great discussion. The author, Christos Tsiolkos, the, the novel Damascus, and it's an Alan and Unwin release jam. And I was speaking with Robin Anir about her book, Nothing New, a text publisher. Nothing New Under the Sun, Ecclesiastes. <laughs> yes. Oh, we've done the circle. One of the great and books. listen in next week. Thanks all. This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.